0: Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is engineer Gary Noble. But first of all, Sony Music is instituting in-house vinyl pressing once again. Now this is kind of interesting because once upon a time, Sony had some of the biggest pressing plants in the world, and they have multiple ones just in the United States, and big pressing operations just about everywhere. And then they sold them all off just about the time digital music started to come in. And now it looks like they're getting back into it again. First of all, they're starting in Japan, and then they're going to move to the UK. And what's interesting as well is the fact that in the existing Sony studios, recording studios, they've now also installed lathes. Now, Sony even gave up on some of their studios, but now it looks like They're coming back around again to having in-house operations. There's one big problem, however. They can't find enough experienced engineers. And this is experienced primarily in cutting vinyl and pressing vinyl. Since the vinyl craze started up a few years ago, just about anybody that knows anything has been hired. And if not, they're working for themselves and they're making a pretty good living. So Sony might have a problem on their hands staffing up. That being said, if you're looking for a gig and you know anything about vinyl, contact Sony. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. If you want to learn more about the basics of mixing, sign up for my four-week Music Mixing Primer webinar course. Go to mixingprimer.com to learn more. Also, check out my new Hitmakers Club for access to a powerful online group, all of my courses, monthly workshops and Q&A webinars, core basic training, and much, much more. Go to hitmakersclub.com to find out all about it. Now... I saw an article not too long ago about some vocal mixing mistakes and I thought I would put my own mistakes together. So this is six typical vocal recording mistakes that I see happening or I hear happening. The first is when engineers ignore the room. The room sound is a big part of a vocal recording. And most of the time, you don't want a big room sound, and that's why you always see baffles around the vocalist. And what they're trying to do is take all of that big room sound and make it into a smaller, more manageable sounding room. So you can't ignore the room, especially if it's a small room that has some bad reflections. That could really make for a bad vocal sound. So you have to be well aware of your room, first of all. The second thing is you can't assume that the best mic that you own is going to work on every vocal. Many times you'd be surprised at what is the best mic for a particular vocalist, and on a particular song. Sometimes what works for a vocalist on every other song might not work on one in particular because of the arrangement. So you have to be aware of all this. You can't always rely on your best mic, and just because you have a really, really good tube mic, for instance, you just can't assume that it's going to work on every vocalist. The next thing is ignoring rumble. There are high-pass filters on microphones and preamps for a reason, and that's to get rid of some unwanted rumble, and some of it is so low that you can't even hear. Things like truck rumble from outside, which, again, is so low, but registers on the meter, if you look at it close enough, and also the fact of the matter is this is all cumulative. You get a lot of rumble across a lot of mics and all of a sudden you have garbage happening in the low end that's really getting in the way of the frequencies that you want to hear. So if you have a high pass filter, there's a reason why it's there and you might want to use it. The next thing is using lots of processing while you're recording. This usually isn't a good idea unless you have a lot of experience and you're absolutely positively sure you want that processing on, and you're not going to change anything later. Now, this goes for compression, it goes for EQ, it goes for any effects. I'm always surprised when I go in and I see someone with a template that has six different plugins across the vocal, and then they're wondering why the vocal doesn't sound good, and they're struggling to actually make it work. Well, the first thing is bypass all those, record it flat, and then do your processing later. Except. If you have so much experience that you know exactly what you're going for, that's about the only time to use processing. Another mistake is not spending enough time on QMix. The cue mix is ultra important in order to get the best performance out of a vocalist. They have to feel comfortable at what they're hearing. That includes them hearing the balance that they really want, as well as the ambience that they want, which might mean a touch of echo, it might mean a touch of reverb. Whatever it is, you have to spend enough time in order to make the vocalist particularly happy because that's the best way to get a really good vocal performance. And the last thing is not waiting for the vocalist to warm up. Many times what we like to do is we like to get early takes because sometimes there's just a magic in them. And while I agree with that and occasionally you can get lucky, most vocalists would prefer to open up and have their voice at the peak before they started to do a lot of takes. So it's a good idea if they can warm up and have lots of time to get very comfortable and feel that their voice is where they want it to be before you start recording seriously. Now, of course, sometimes you get really lucky, and on a first run-through you get something magic that you just can't beat later on. But usually that's not the case. So those are six typical vocal mistakes that I see quite often in recording. that If you just take a little bit of time, you'll find that your vocal and your vocal performance will be a lot better. My guest today is engineer Gary Noble, who's won three Grammys and has been nominated 18 times for his mixing and recording work. Gary's credits include Amy Winehouse, Jesse J, Josh Stone, the Fugees, Wyclef Jean, and many, many more. I spoke with Gary via Skype from his studio in Miami. I looked at your resume. I looked at a lot of things that you did. And one of the things struck me is that you started pretty late in the business. How old were you when you kind of got into all this?
1: In my 20s like
0: mid 20s did you have a mentor that kind of pushed you along
1: yeah um well yeah what happened was uh i started djing was like when i was like 15 and i was doing that for a while and i wasn't as successful as these guys now because back then the opportunities weren't the same but i was making a decent living while i was still going to school and stuff like that but also my family they didn't really see music thing as a viable option they wanted me to go to school and get my you know electrical engineering degree or or something to that effect and so i kind of hesitated on doing it but then after a while i realized that i kept being pulled even when i was in school on weekends i would in between doing parties and stuff like for extra money i was still being pulled into the studio and i just decided one day that i'm just going to try and do it. But even when I first started doing it, I had a regular job during the days. Like I worked like 6 a.m. to 2 p.m. and then go to the studio after that and work to whatever. So I was sleeping like an hour or two every day. Like on my lunch break, I would go in the car and sleep and tell my friend to come wake me up to go back to work and stuff like that. I did that for, for a little while and until I felt I was ready to, you know, commit and I just made the jump. The guy who I started with, uh, his name is uh, Franklin Grant. It's a guy. He was a military guy that was doing music, and I met him. He was actually my neighbor. He lived across the street, and um, there was another guy that lived on my block, um, uh, Don Davidson, who was doing music on the side too. But he was in the uh, mostly in the reggae marketplace. But he was the first one I went to the studio with. And when I walked in, I was like, oh man, this is nice. I was looking on equipment. I was talking to the guys, the musicians and the engineer and everything. But when I went with Frank to a student in Brooklyn Restoration Project, and I walked in and you know, they had an MCI console, a student tape machine, they had the Uri 13s in the wall. remember those? Oh, I do, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um I stayed there the whole night and watched the whole um session go down um the guys on the session the musicians that were recording were the keyboard player and the drummer from m2 me mm. at the time nice so yeah so i got to talk to them and oh that's the first time i touched a drum machine also it was a Lindrum. remember the original lin drum machine you bet they had one there so I, I i had the headphones on and they told me hey try this out check it out blah 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 and when the session was over i went to him and told him listen I think I really want to be an engineer. I think that's what I need to do. And he said, well, I hear that every day. If you're serious, go to, uh, IR, Institute of audio research. Yeah. Do the modern recording technology program. And when you finish that, um, come back and see me. So I did it. And when I came back, I said, listen, I did the program. I'm ready. Let's go. And he was like, Oh, so you're serious. He said, at least twenty people said that same thing to me, and you're only person who went actually actually did what I told him to do. He said no one else that asked him to be an engineer went and did the program. I was the only one, and yeah. then that's where it started. Then, after that, he introduced me to Salam, Remy, yeah, and Van Gibbs, his dad. This was in like '89. Yeah, I met them in '89, December of '89, and then the rest is history. And that's how I started working with them from then on, and then I just been doing a lot of stuff since then so yeah i was a late starter i hesitated even before i went into an official studio i had a like a, a semi-home studio in my basement with a uh revox uh t- you know reel-to-reel with cell sync so i could record on one channel and overdub on the channel dual cassette decks had a mxr uh delay machine with up to three seconds of sampling, so I could, um, loop, so I could loop stuff. And I was like experimenting and stuff, trying different things, you know, using stuff that we use on the sound system. I knew what, uh, you know, we had uh, uh, um, the delay uh, box. Uh, I forgot the name of it. You know, the one it's green and silver. Uh, analog, it uses tapes. You put it, you have to buy the tape card input. The Space Echo. The Roland, the Roland Space Echo. I had that, you know, we had access to all that stuff. So, I was experimenting with stuff already, but I wanted to get like officially training. Like I wanted to learn the proper way because I would listen to records when I was a DJ. I like I could pick a record up, look at the label, and already know what the texture, the the sonics of the the sound would be because the labels they had a consistent sound because they use a lot of this. They they use the same mastering guy, and a lot of times the engineer is the same mixing engineer, and they had a certain texture. So like Columbia sounded different from Atlantic. You know, they um uh Sugar Hill sounded a certain way, like they all had different sounds. And I always listen to them, like how did they get the drums like that? How did they get the bass? Up? Listen to the vocals on that record. I want to know how they did that. So that's how I got into it. Like I was always into Sonics. I got into trouble with my dad when I was five years old because he came home early from work and caught me playing with his stereo system. <laughs> and he always told me hands off, like he didn't want anybody touching the system. I knew how to clean the records, I knew how to put them on. I knew how to put the needle on without scratching. I knew how to adjust the, the levels. I knew, I knew that if I turn the, the balance left and right, I could hear, it, oh, it goes to that speaker, go to the speaker. The treble does this, the bass does that. So I was always like into sound, but I wasn't sure what I wanted to, to do. I took piano lessons for one semester in high school and stuff like that, because just to figure out how the musical notes work and stuff like that. But I've always been drawn to like the sonics some reason. Okay. I listen to stuff like why is this stuff, you know, come why does the transistor radio sound like that and the home stereo sound like why does this car stereo sound like I always like was into that. And and how how do they get it to sound even though I'm listening on transistor radio, it still feels good just as if I was listening on my home stereo, even though the frequency response is limited. So I was always drawn to stuff like that. Even when I was listening watching TV and watching movies, I'm listening to the to 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 the uh the sounds that they use, that's in the background, like to build tension in the scene and all that stuff. And I was always like drawn to stuff like that. And that's how I got into engineering.
0: Yeah, you really didn't start that late then. I mean, if you're into nah, that. No, nah, I
1: didn't. It started right. The official the official start time was late, but the unofficial start time started really, really early. Yeah. I just wasn't sure what path I was going to take.
2: Yeah, I hear you.
1: And even when I was going to IR, I did, even did internship at a master lab because I wanted to see how stuff was mastered how they ended the tape, the half inches, how they do it, how the cassettes were put together, all that stuff. I, I got to see firsthand how that stuff was doing, how to how to operate the lathe and all that stuff. I really got to to see that. But then I, I'm i I'm glad that I learned that. But what I also got from that was that I realized that I didn't want to work in the mastermind. I wanted to work in the studio where I can be a part of the creation process. Like I really get off and working with musicians and the artists and live stuff and all that stuff. And I do enjoy working with electronic stuff also. And, and it kind of, working with Salam it was, uh, and, and his, his, his team was a great experience for me because I got to merge the two things together, the DJ aspect and the live aspect. I got to merge it because he does a lot of stuff that's combining program material with live material. Like he 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 really excels at that. So we got to do a lot of stuff that it sounds and feels completely organic, but it's, it's a mixture of both. Like what um, a lot of times we were mixing stuff and I had to take stuff that was a sample or or uh, interpolation of a sample and make it sound like it's completely live, and vice versa. Sometimes they want the live stuff to sound like it was sampled when it wasn't sampled. So I really got to do all that stuff and experiment and try different stuff, and then we would do stuff at. Soundless Sound, the Hit Factory, the Old Hit Factory, yeah, unique. Uh, one of my favorite of work was Soundtracks. Remember Soundtracks? Yeah, you from bet. The first on Broadway. Yeah, yeah. We used to be, yeah, we used to be in the A room a lot on the EVR. I like, I like that room.
0: Well, wait, let's come back for a second. You, yeah. you, you just mentioned about when you're taking samples and when you're taking loops yeah. and electronic tracks and making them sound more natural. What was the trick? What did you do?
1: Oh, well, what I did was I would listen to the track, right, and then figure out what do I need to do to enhance it. Is it. Do I need to add more sheen, or does it need more mids, or less mids? A lot of times I end up doing uh, subtractive EQing. Yeah. And then um, to kind of expand the track, and then sometimes I would add a, try to find a reverb that matched a little bit more, add just a little bit. It's not enough to where you're going to say, oh, you add a reverb, but when you mute it, it's like, some of the space would disappear from the track. Yep. So what I would do is I would listen to the live instruments, listen to the sample and say, okay, what's missing from this one that I need to add to make it sound more like that one. And then I, I got to, because of the way he works, like he can listen to like a sample of drums and then he could play live hi-hats on top of it. And I would blend the live hi-hats into the sample, but then open the sample up. So now that instead of them sounding like two distinct things where it sounds like a sample drum break with a hi hat on top, it just sounds like one solid thing. Yeah. So it just sound like one solid drum break, or one solid live drums, uh, or whatever. You no, know, depending on what he was looking for, um, for that particular song. And one of the things that that I like about working with him is like every mix was different. Like every mix called for something. Cause we worked on so many different genres of stuff. Like, yeah, we did a lot of hip hop. Yeah, we did some reggae stuff, and you know, we did some jazz. We did some R and B. Uh, alternative rock, like we did a lot of different things, and we had to like merge. Sometimes we end up merging multiple genres together on one project. You know, at the time we're doing it, it's like, oh man, this is hard. This, is how we're gonna make this work? We kind of figure out. Sometimes it just takes one style. Like we could take sample drums and then play live bass and guitar on it, and then have the person, the artist, performing whether they're rapping or singing. And when the listener hears it, it just sounds like a record. They don't care about where it came from. All I know we wanted. To the ultimate goal was to make it feel good to the listener. That's 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 was the ultimate goal. So whatever I had to do to take it there, that's what it was. Sometimes I would take a sample and split it four or five times on the console. So I had the first tracks, two tracks would be the sample naturally, then I would have one that's like all mostly sheen, then one that where I gated the kick out, gated the snare out, then another one that's mostly sub and. Like, just try different things and mess around with the balance of it and then have all of those bust to another two tracks that I would have at the end of the board that would get the overall compression and EQ stuff. But then I had to mess with the balance of it till we got the feel that he was looking for for the record. So a lot of it was about balancing, but then I would use EQ and compression to, to enhance the, the, the sample if needed.
0: Yeah, I get it. Okay, so yeah. you, you come from the days where you, you were in analog and you're mixing on a console. Yeah, music. yeah.
1: I learned, Yeah, When I learned it was all analog, I was either working on the SSL or Neve um, with the Studer machine or Atari machine, or um, we also used the Tascam machine, uh-huh. which is actually a good sounding machine, even though you know it was considered prosumer, not really professional, but it was actually a solid machine that sounded great. Uh, I remember one time we had a uh, this tech, uh, Greg Hanks, I think his name is. He oh yeah. He came out to check out the machine. You remember Greg, right? Yeah, I did. He came and checked out the machine everything. And he was like, wow, this machine is really great, man. I'm surprised more people are not using it. He said the transport is very well made. It's very solid. And the head bump on the, um, on the, uh, on the, on the, the response on it, the, the head bump on the, on the, on the heads was very similar to the Studer. He said the <laughs> old, the uh, old Studer. Yeah. So it sounded good. They also had a board that we used, uh, alarm had them um, installed uptown automation in it and oh. we use we actually mix fuji law we actually mix fuji law on a task console not an yeah. SSO wow
0: <laughs> yeah who would have thought well okay yeah. so you started uh, on a real console and right I suppose now you're more in the box right
1: yes yes a lot i mix in the box a lot now i do uh, a lot of stuff in in the box and I'll admit that when I first tried to make the transition, it was not an easy transition for me. Um, I had to rethink a lot of things because digital, as you know, is a different animal from analog. There's no plus anything. Zero is the maximum you can go. And one of the first things I did was I spoke to a couple of mastering engineers because they were at the forefront of the whole digital thing. Like I would go to mastering, um, um, mastering sessions, and i'll see these really expensive converters and uh, like the YCQ EQ and all this other stuff that was digital and i would talk to them and they you know they told me oh you have to watch your levels you know like you know 0 db uh, analog is minus 18 or you know depending on what you converted, but you know, like the standard is like minus 18 or minus 20 so i had to learn all that stuff and basically what i did by was i went out and bought Pro Tools LE yeah with a digital one Before I had an audio media card, I was messing around with um, sound designer. Remember sound designer?
2: Yeah, yeah, you bet.
1: Yeah, I used to mess around with that, whatever. But I was just messing around, trying to see what it could do, doing edits and stuff for that. I wasn't really taking it seriously until I saw that Pro Tools was now, like, becoming a staple in all the studios. And in the beginning, I didn't like Pro Tools. I would just use it like a tape machine. I would just feed it in the console, do my mix, and, you know, record the half inch and that, whatever. But then I saw more and more people starting to do stuff in the box. I said, you know what? I think that this is where the thing where you know it's heading, and I need to learn this if I'm going to stay viable in the industry. So I bought Pro Tools early, and I stayed home for three days. I didn't do nothing else but that. I had a manual in my lap, and I taught myself how to use Pro Tools. Wow. And at the end of the three days, I wasn't a master at it, but I knew enough where I could actually sit in a session and record and edit. Somebody. Yeah. So that's how I did And that's how it started. And then after that, I decided, okay, um, I still wasn't crazy about the sound of it. I was still would only mix. I was recording it, but I would only mix on a console. But then when Pro Tools HD came out, the sound improved by tenfold. And I was like, you know what? I think it's getting close now to the point where I can actually use it. I actually mix in the box. So I, you know, I said, okay, I'm going to try a mix. So a session that I had, I, um, instead of feeding the console, I mix it in the box. And I'm going to admit to you now, and I've told other people before, that first mix, you cannot find it because I deleted it. The hard <laughs> drive got thrown in the fire. It's like, it was one of the worst mixes i ever done in my life.
2: <laughs>
1: because I was just getting the hang. I didn't really, you know, understand the whole mixing in the box thing. Yet. I was just getting the hang of it. So the mix was nowhere close to where I would like it to be. But, I kept at it. Yeah. I kept at it. I kept at it. To the point now where I have it now where I can mix in the box no problem and you swear I mix it on the SSL because I know what it's supposed to sound like on SSL and I figured out how to get that sound in the box. Well, and the plug is now at such high quality that, that, that you can basically do that. My, 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 if I have my choice, if budget and schedule allows, I would still do the hybrid thing where I have the session in Pro Tools and I do a lot of you know tricks and automation and all that stuff, but I have it going to the console. But a lot of times I don't have that that option, so I've learned how to make it sound great, mixing the box. And um, right now I'm using Pro Tools. I use Logic and I use Studio One, Persona Studio One. Great piece of software. I like it. And um, I'm in the process of learning uh, Ableton a lot of producers use ableton now yeah 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 so i'm you know i'm 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 an old school analog guy but i'm also intrigued by all these new technologies and all these new tools and stuff that's that's coming out and these these new sounds and textures that they're getting from from them
0: you know you, you just mentioned three digital audio workstations packages there yeah which is your preference all
1: right preference um Pro Tools, I use, I would say I use like 80% of the time because most of my clients, that's what they use. Yeah. And then I would say I use Logic 10% and Studio One 10%. Now, Studio One. I would say that, but Studio One to me sounds sounds great. I like the workflow, how easy it is to add stuff, the way it's set up. Even like, right, you know, like when Pro Tools, a lot of times you go look for a plugin, you have to scroll down the whole list. Yeah. If you don't want to go to it, you just put the name of the plugin in the search thing and it just pulls it right up for you. You don't even have to go scrolling to it and all that stuff. If you want to add an aux, you just say, you just select the tracks. Like if I say, okay, I have 20 tracks of backgrounds, I need to create a, a, um, a group master for them and blah, blah, blah. I just select the tracks and just say create aux and it just does all around and everything for you. You don't even have to do it.
2: No, oh, that's nice. It's, uh, Mac, it
1: automatically sets up the Yeah, yeah. And editing in it is really nice. It, it just works really well. And I use it in um I use it in conjunction with their Fader Port Eight. Yeah. That gives you get eight faders and transport controls and all these other things. And I just find myself working much, much more efficiently now with that. And also use the soft cube console one oh uh, yeah which is yeah yeah so i've been I, I adapted that and all this happened this year before that i was always doing everything with the keyboard and trap ball and that's this year i just adapted that because i wanted uh i w- I mean i use the d command i've used the icon all that stuff but the, all that stuff is proto-centric i wanted a a control surface that i could use with multiple doors yeah and when they came out with this they sent, they sent one to me to try it out and stuff, and I tried it, and I was like, oh man, this is great. It's small, I could throw it in my backpack. You know, it's portable. It's eight. Yeah, people like, but it's all eight faders. I don't need more than eight faders at a time.
2: Yeah, right, right, right. You know I mean?
1: yeah, yeah. And it, you, know, you could go in banks, you could move over a single time, you could go in banks, you know, you could select the track in the one, and it'll show up there. And has, you know, I could add markers, I could turn the click on and off. Like it has all these functions. I could add markers just by clicking a button it's like it's really it's made my my workflow you know way more uh efficient i find my mixes come together much faster now because i'm able to have be more hands-on
0: you know you you talked before about when you first started mixing in the box and then Mm -hmm. you came to a point where you felt that what you were doing in the box was as good as what you could do on a console right what was that point what did you find out was there a an aha moment that you went, oh, that's what I gotta do. Uh,
1: okay, yeah, yeah. Um, it was the aha moment, two things happened. One is I started realizing that the, the levels of not just on the master, but of the individual tracks were very important. And the game staging, the same thing I used to do with the hardware, I have to do with the plugins. The gain staging of the plugins is very important too. And, um, the sound improved drastically when I started doing everything in 24-bit instead of 16.
2: Mm, yeah.
1: That was a big thing. And now like now a lot of my work is done in 24-bit 96 or 32-bit 96. That mm, yeah. really, especially when it's stuff when I'm working with like live strings and brass sections and stuff like that. To me, it really the upper frequency response, like the air and the space and stuff, is just much more uh, you know, it's just it just comes across much better to me. I've done stuff that's in forty four or forty eight that sounds great too, but it was well recorded by the producer or the, the recording engineer and it all depends on the converter because i've used i've used like my personal um converters i use i use a metric halo
2: oh yeah yeah i have, yeah, them too. I have a
1: metric Halo. right and then i also have a um a uh, Apollo twin probably new on the, the mark tools
2: i do too yeah yeah
1: yeah, yeah, I like it. So that was one thing. The other thing was the UAD plugins. Yeah. I started using them, I started um, checking out, I don't remember who turned me on to them first, but I've been using them. Like I saw them online, I saw them in magazines and stuff, like that, but I've been using them since day ones when they were just UAD1 cars. I actually still have my Digi chassis with the four UAD cards in it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't use them, but it stays it's still there. Yeah. So yeah. now I'm using an Octo I'm using an Octo satellite. I have a quad satellite and I have the Apollo twin. So when I mix UAD plugins all is all over it. One, because they actually sound good to me. It, um, you know, people say, nah, you just like it because of the grass. I was like, no, they actually sound good to me. Like when I turn the knob on a Neve plugin, it responds similar to how the gears plug. Is it exactly the same? I don't know, but I know I can get good sound out of it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm gonna give you another story real soon after that. Yeah. So I started using that, and using them was easy for me because the, int- the, the, the 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 interface of it was similar to the gear that I was used to using. So it was a, it made the transition easier for me. So that's one of the things that helped. Um, one thing I had to learn though. When I first started using them, I would try to like kind of match settings of the hardware, I and mean, it never sounded the same. Yeah. And I was like, "This doesn't make sense." But what I figured out, um, Bob, is that if I just don't pay attention to the settings and just turn the knob, even if I had to, at the beginning I used to close my eyes all the time, just turn the knob till like I get the sound that I wanted. I found that I could achieve the same sound. The knobs might look crazy, like wait a minute, what? This is turned this way, that way? But I got the same sound. And the way I figured it out was I did a test. I was at Circus Studios one day, um, was doing some stuff. I think it was Amy's first album we were working on, on Frank? Yeah. And I ran some sounds through it. So I had the hardware needs. We had a, 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 a portable rack with eight channels of 1077s, right? Yeah. And then I had the, the 1073 UAD plugins. So I ran some sounds through it. And uh, I think I started with the drums. I think it was the drums I was doing. And what I did was I recorded, I had the drums on the track, so I duplicated the drum tracks and I had them going through the hardware and then I had them going through the plugin and I had it on the console where I could switch between them easily. And I just kept adjusting the plugin to when I switched the people in the room, like Salaam and other people in the room, they could be able to tell which one was which. And that's when I realized that don't worry about if it's plus three at a hundred hertz. Don't worry about that. Just turn the knob till you get the sound what you like. And once when that aha moment happened, that's when all all the digital stuff that I was doing in the box, that's when it started sounding good. Yeah. yeah. Then I no longer cared about the knob, about what the knob, the settings were, and all that stuff. I just I just use my ears just like I used to with the analog stuff, but. The thing about the law of the digital is is that, as I tell a lot of uh, upcoming engineers and producers, the same thing. Because I was caught by that is that when we mix in a box, we tend to use our eyes more than our ears.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: So you know, I say it. I know it sounds corny, but I say it all the time. to listen, remember, mix with your ears, not your eyes. Don't look at the waveform or look at the plugin and say, "Well, if I turn it to this, it's supposed to sound." No, don't do that. Just turn it to where you get do you get the snare cracking the way you want. Then you stop. And you go on to the next thing. Another thing I did I do, which I, I you know, I took I brought over from the analog world is that when I'm mixing, I don't compress in solo. I don't solo when I'm compressing or EQing. I do it in the context of the mix.
0: That's a good tip. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. So that's something that I I you know, I um I stress to people all the time when they ask me questions of, to deal with, you know, mixing and stuff like that. And um yeah, that's basically this. That was my yeah. aha moment yeah. that day when I did that. I was on a G+, and I had the knees there, and I had the UAD, and we were running to, um, you know, Pro Tools HD and all that. Yeah. I was using the, uh, remember the the Crane Song?
2: Yes, absolutely. Ed
1: 192? Yeah. Yeah. Great box. I love that box. I use that in a lot of things. I did use that. I use a Prism HD, and I used the UA 2192. Nice. Yeah. So, you no, know, I was trying different things, experimenting with different things, and that's, that's how I figured out. Uh, that's, for me, that was my aha moment that you just asked about.
0: Yeah, got it. Okay, so you just mentioned you did a lot of mixing on the various SSLs. So right. I'm sure you got used to using the mix bus compressor. So now when you mix in the box, what do you put on your mix bus?
1: I use, uh, believe it or not, I was one of the few guys that didn't really go crazy with that mix bus compressor. Oh, okay. I didn't really use it. Yeah, I didn't use it a lot. Like, I would use it every once in a while. Even when I did, I was use it, like, just very lightly just to kind of add, like, a little, you know, SSL glue to it. But I wouldn't have the meters jumping around. In other words, the difference is it was a very subtle difference when it was in or when it was bypassed. I didn't, like, really depend on it to bring the mix together. Yeah. But I found that when I went... In the box, I had to put stuff on a master fader to really get the sound that I was looking for. A lot of times did I use the two units that I always um, seem to use. Not always, but when I feel like it's needed, is I use um, the ATR-102. Yeah. And um, I use the Shadow Hills.
2: Oh, yeah.
1: I like the Shadow Hills. Yeah, both of those U- UAD.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I like both. I like using those. Um, Lately, because I have a console one, I've been using the way the console one works is you just put the plugin insert on all the tracks. It doesn't use any CPU when it's just sitting idle, and when you start using it, yeah. And then what I do is I pull up. It comes standard with the SSL strip, so I just pull that up. But it also controls UAD plugins, so I just pull that up, and then I just go through and adjust it just like I was on an SSL console. I start doing the compression and the EQ and everything, and I'm not able to dial in the sounds, like, really fast. Whereas before, I was literally put them, you know, from UA channel strips, channel strip, channel strips, which uses up a lot of DSP. That's why I had to get an octo, because you run at 96k, it cuts your voice is in, in, in half. So, you know, my DSP usage went way up, so that's why I ended up getting an octo. But the, the soft tube SSL actually sounds pretty good, too. So I use a combination of both of them now to get get stuff um sounding right
0: so you mentioned before about doing amy Winehouse's first album and i understand maybe you can confirm this i understand that she didn't really do a lot of takes that most of her her vocals were and 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 i find this interesting because i did a book with ken scott who was Mm. david bowie's producer obviously for you know four albums and he told me that there was only one song that he remembered that they actually overdubbed a vocal everything else was first take and uh, when i'm reading this about amy i'm thinking wow this is pretty much the same true or not
1: yeah very few takes the most we do like maybe three four top like she's a performance artist so she go in the booth like i I, um a lot of songs that were put together was we would she'd build a song playing on a guitar on a wireless right yeah then we put together like a dummy track like a dummy um, drum track, and she'd go in the booth and she would sing the song down playing the guitar. Then we kind of flesh the track out along with Add Stuff, Live Bass. He plays upright bass, by the way. He plays upright bass and standard bass and drums. And then we'd have, you know, Vincent Henry come in add some horn parts, oboes, clarinets, whatever, sax. And we kind of like flesh it out and then she'd come back in and do the final vocal. And I would literally, Bob, no exaggeration, hit record, and he was singing a song from top to bottom. Wow. Then we go back. I do a new playlist. that records. She's singing on, and then we go back and listen and say, okay, we like the first verse from take three. We like the second verse from take two, and then the third verse from take one. And then use the vamp because she just opened up, like she was just playing around with it, and we like the energy from it, stuff like that. That's how it used to be. I wasn't sitting there punching constantly punch. Okay, we have to punch. We have to punch. She didn't like that. She likes to just perform the song. And that's why she was able, when she did went on stage, that's why she was able to do so effortlessly because that's how she always does it. Yeah. Even when she's writing in the studio and she has a song written out, she's sitting, literally sitting with a notebook next door and she's on the couch with the guitar playing the song and singing it. And then she finishes okay, what do you think?
2: Mm, <laughs> like,
1: wow. Yeah, she was that type of an artist. Yeah.
0: Very cool. Well, okay, so you've done a lot of different types of music, a lot of different genres. Mm -hmm. Is your approach different when you go into a a particular one?
1: Yes. Well, my overall approach is always the same. I always try to talk to the artist and producer, if necessary, find out what their concept and vision is for the song, and listen to it. And then, depending on the genre that it's in, I would approach, like, of course, you know, if I'm doing something that's hip-hop, it's going to be very drum centric. So the drums, what I do is I have, you know, focus on the drum, getting the drums as big as possible, but leaving space for the vocals and the other instrumentation. And then while I'm doing the drums, I will keep putting the vocal up, especially the lead. If it's a um, rap single, I keep putting the lead up just to see how it goes against the drums. And then I'll do that. If I'm doing like a and B um, alternative rock or, you know, like soft uh, pop record or whatever, a lot of times I start with the vocals first. Mm. It all depends on what I'm feeling from the song. Yeah, like if I feel like the vocal is, is, is you know, um, needs the most work, or I feel like the vocal is the def, you know, definitive center of the track. No matter what the track is doing, but that's what I I make that the focal point. Yeah, and yeah. then I start from there and then build everything around it. So that you know, that's that's what I do. I kind of listen to it based on the concept that they have based on the genre that it is and then based on what i'm feeling the track what it's saying to me and then i have to think okay they say they want to do this what do i need to do do i need to bring the guitars out i need to scoop them out do i need to put them in the back like you know based on what they're trying to to, to what they're trying to say with the song so that's 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 how i that's how i approach it
0: are you only mixing these days you're recording too
1: no, I, I, I started doing some recording again because I, to be honest, I missed being in the studio. One of the m- most fun sessions I've had in a long time was two years ago. I uh, went to two and a half years now. I went to London to work with this great artist named Kate Earle um, on a project, and we did everything live. Mm. There was nothing sequenced, and I was in there. We had a drummer. We had a bass player. We had a guitar player. We had a keyboardist. We record everything live, and everything was one go except for the stuff that we had to overdub, like grand pianos and guitar solos and stuff like that. Because of course, you know, but we do it. Everybody's in the same room. We had we did at Rock Studios. Oh yeah. So we had a panel. Yeah, they had a, 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 a movable panel that they that they set up for the drums, so the drums kind of isolated to keep the noise level down. The guitar amps were, you know, they made a makeshift kind of iso box type thing, and then we had a, we did a makeshift booth for her using gobos with, you know, that she could see out and interact with the rest of the band. We put up a couple of different mics and tried different things. And once we locked into the sound, we decided to use that. Um, worked with this great recording engineer. I forgot his name, uh, Mike. Some, i can't remember his name, but. Good guy. Overall, the staff the, the staff was excellent. I had no 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 issues. Everything went smoothly. And when it didn't, they you know were on top of it, um, we got to record through uh, 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 API original API that was built for that studio. Um, the studio belongs to uh, Mickey Post. You remember Mickey Post? Right,
0: uh, Mickey Most. Yeah.
1: Mickey Most. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm horrible with names. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, so he was there. He actually, his son actually lent us his actual guitar to use on one of the songs. Wow, I took over. Yeah, Mickey Most
0: is a he's a legend.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, and they have another room to the VR, but we didn't we didn't get to um, work in it. Then we did one session, we did a horn session in there, but I didn't get to mix anything in there, and um, I didn't get to mix at the studio. Actually, brought all the tracks back with me to Miami and mixed it here. Yeah. When well, we captured all the sounds there and everything was live. The only time we used to click was just for the intro. Like one, two, three, four, and then the band would start and they just just, just let it go live. So when I was mixing, I was setting all the delays and and pre delays for the um reworking all the stuff I was doing by ear.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I was
1: yeah. just listening to just like the old days and just tap it in. And that's how I was setting it and um Chad Blake also mixed some of the stuff on the album, and he didn't. He said the recordings were great. He didn't have any issues with it.
0: It's so, a, um, so much fun to do a session like yeah. that where everything is live and all yeah, the musicians are in the room. Yeah, it
1: is, and we're talking and the collaboration that mixed that, and you know, we're discussing music. They're all about the music, and it, it was it was a group of young guys, but they were very talented. I mean, I was really surprised. They had they were young, but their sensibility, musical sensibilities were uh, uh no very mature <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah yeah
1: they they they, they their, their approach to it was very mature sure yeah
0: okay gary last question what's the best piece of business advice that maybe you received from somebody or you learned by yourself along the way
1: best piece of business advice a good question because uh, things have of 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 changed a lot as you know <laughs> yeah um Best business, uh, business advice I can give is, if you really want to do it, go for it. But here's the thing: if whether you go to full sale or SAE, whatever school you go to, when you graduate, be prepared to still be an intern, even though you have the basic knowledge to you know work in a studio. Because I've met a couple of people over the years that went to school and when they you know, decided that, you know, okay, you know, I graduated school, blah, 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 I do pro tools and this and that, blah, blah, blah. And they, they expect to come to the studio and they sit in the engineer's chair and just start running the session. And I'm like, okay, you know more than the guy, average guy walking up the street, but you still need to learn how to operate in a professional environment. And most of all, how to communicate and interact with clients. Because um I mean, obviously, I haven't been to school in years, but I think that aspect of it is something that you—it's a hands-on type of thing. So unless you're interning in a studio while you're going to school, that part of it needs to be, you know, worked on. Needs to because it's, it's you're dealing with different people, different personalities, different situations, and you have to remain like very flexible. That's one of the things that I learned over the years is that you have to be like very flexible as an individual. And very flexible as an engineer. Um, if you're working and a piece of gear stops working, something happens, you can't get upset in front of the client. It makes you look bad. It makes the studio look bad. What you have to do is say, listen, we're having a technical issue. Give me a few minutes. Let me figure it out. And then you call the tech for the studio if there's one. And in the meantime, if there's not one available, you can't get there for an hour or two, then you try to work around the uh, problem. Throwing tantrums and stuff is not a good look for you professionally or for the studio. Because when you're working in the studio, whether you're on staff or you're freelance, you're representing that organization. So I think that um, that's something that people need to keep in mind when doing stuff. And another thing is when you're working with clients and they ask for something, even if you don't like it or you don't think it's right, still try to give them what they want. Because at the end of the day, it's their song. You have to remember the music is like, it's a part of them. It's like a piece of their soul. So when you try to deny them what they're looking for, they take it personally. Even though you're just doing your job, it becomes very personal for them. So you have to like know how to walk that fine line between getting the job done to the best of your ability, but making them happy at the same time. Yeah. And that only comes with with time.
0: You might want to check out Gary's very informative blog at garynobleshow.blogspot.com. That's Gary Noble Show, N-O-B-L-E Show, S-H-O-W, that's all one word, at blogspot.com. Thanks for listening to being in my Inner Circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyowintercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to Bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or you can go to BobbyoInnerCircle.com or find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, and Google Play. At bobbyowintercircle.com and bobbyowintercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time.